Crypto has taken the world by storm. A niche computer science topic less than a decade ago has finally entered the purview of mainstream today. Coinbase has filed to go public, institutions are accepting that Bitcoin, and more broadly, crypto should be a part of their asset allocation strategy, and we're starting to see a variety of interesting projects and applications take shape. One of the most popular as of late has been BitCloud, but it hasn't always been so obvious or so popular. One of the earliest and most consistent proponents, though, of Bitcoin has been Anthony Pompliano, co-founder of Morgan Creek Digital and current CEO of Pomp Investments. In today's conversation, Pomp and I discussed how his interest in Bitcoin evolved. He was in the army, led the growth team at Facebook, and eventually went full steam into crypto. We started at a foundational level, breaking down questions like, what is money? And evolved more deeply into Bitcoin specifically and its implications. We spent the latter half of the discussion on Pomp's budding media empire. With almost 700,000 followers on Twitter and a variety of other initiatives going on, Pomp is building something extremely special. Welcome, Anthony. It's a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Pomp, excited to have you on the on the pod today. We're going to talk about a bunch of different topics, you know, Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about decentralized uh, decentralization and what's going on in the world and then the future of media and creatorship. But before we jump in, just tell folks a little bit more you know, about your background. Yeah, so um, I uh, was in the U.S. Army for about six and a half years, did a deployment overseas to Iraq, uh, came back, uh, built and sold two small software companies in Raleigh, North Carolina, then went out, uh, ran some product and growth teams at uh, Facebook, worked at Snapchat for a short period of time, and then uh, started investing full-time in uh, 2016. Um, and uh, initially focused just early stage investing, uh, kind of industry agnostic, but uh, simultaneous to starting investing, I also started to build uh, mining facilities uh, for cryptocurrency, and uh, eventually just kind of went down the rabbit hole and decided to uh, focus the majority of my time uh, and effort there, and so for the last number of years have uh, been investing in the space, uh, creating content, um, and, uh, and generally just trying to, uh, to learn alongside everybody else and wrap my head around uh, the industry. And we know you from the internet as, as one of the biggest advocates of Bitcoin. Uh, I want to spend some time at the beginning of the conversation going through a pretty first principles discussion of Bitcoin. Um, but to do that, I want you to first unpack, you have a pretty interesting perspective just on the concept of money, right? Uh, a concept we take for granted, obviously a part of daily life. Uh, but if I ask you the simple question, Pump, you know, what is money? How do you answer that, right? How do you unpack that? Yes, I think first you got to separate out currency and money, right? Uh, Currency is just simply a belief system. Um, It's a religion, right? And it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, cigarettes in uh, a prison being served as a uh, currency. We're talking about the U.S. dollar, uh, Bitcoin, or something else, right? It literally is just a belief system that uh, I can exchange it for a good or a service, uh, and you will accept it because we both believe it has value. Um, and so a currency is uh, kind of serves two purposes, store of value and um, uh, medium of exchange. Uh, money specifically uh, is referring to sound money. And so really there's kind of two core elements of this. It also serves as a store of value and a medium of exchange, but it is not controlled by any one person or group. Uh, and it is outside of what you would consider the, uh, the financial system or the nation state system. 
And so historically, money has been uh, in analog or physical form, uh, in gold specifically. Uh, and now with Bitcoin, what you get is you get a digital application of, of sound money or, or money. Uh, and so again, you know, outside the system, nobody controls it. Nobody can create more of it. Uh, one was a physical version. Now we have a digital version. Uh, and so uh, the interesting thing about money specifically is that uh, money is a currency, right? All money is a currency, but not all currencies are money. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of a nuanced kind of uh, terminology, uh, but important to kind of understand the difference because as we get later in the discussion, it, you know, that, that's really the crux of why I think Bitcoin has value. Yeah, and let's let's dive let's double click into into one of those points, uh, medium of exchange specifically, right? Historically, I think one of the biggest limiting factors for trade, economic activity, et cetera, in the world was just limitations around mediums of exchange. So if you're bartering with horses or livestock or produce, it's it's not standardized, right, to what the opposite side of that trade might want. Uh, but in the early, you know, in the 19th century, the world converged on gold as a store of value and, and trade exploded. So talk a little bit more about, you know, obviously we've gone from gold to fiat and, and, and now digital money and we'll, we'll talk about Bitcoin, but kind of walk us through a little bit of the chronology, you know, of how we've kind of translated medium of exchanges, you know, through the course of human history. Yeah, so I'll actually even take it a step further, which is um, let's just talk about assets in general, right? So there's kind of four assets. You have stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. Um, and those assets uh, have gone through a technology uh, transformation uh, or transition over time. And so pretty much since the beginning of time until uh, let's call it the, uh, the 1960s, 70s, and, and really into the 80s, uh, every single asset was physical in nature, or what I call kind of the analog age of assets. And so this is uh, literally physical currencies, uh, physical stock certificates, uh, physical commodities, uh, physical deeds to your home, et cetera. And uh, what happened when uh, basically computers uh, were created and uh, they then began to become connected uh, through the internet uh, is we transitioned from that analog age to what I call the electronic age. And the electronic age simply refers to, uh, we now created electronic QCIPs, which is a super technical concept, but basically you can think of it as uh, a version of a computer file uh, that is held in centralized databases at financial institutions. And when you are buying a stock today or you are sending money to somebody, right, or, or uh, what you end up hap what ends up happening is you're uh, sending these electronic QCIPs or you're buying the electronic QCIP. And so it's not actually like somebody sends you the stock certificate or you don't get the physical stock certificate anymore. You just get this electronic use if it sits inside of a, uh, a database somewhere. And so that transition was incredibly uh, pertinent uh, to the creation of what we know today as the global financial system, right? It's the entire system is built on these electronic QCIPs. Um, and the people who were early to seeing that transition and, uh, and kind of participating in it uh, really benefited. And so what you, they realized was uh, rather than participate in the analog uh, aspect of this, I can now do it in this electronic uh, version, but I'm still buying the same asset. So I'm still buying, let's say, a share in a company, uh, but, and I'm probably still buying it from the same counterparty. It's just, I can either call up my broker on the stock exchange floor and they can run over and in an open outcry method, like basically bid and uh, ask until they get the shares that I want, or I can execute the exact same purchase via the computer. And of course, the computer was more efficient, lower cost, you know, all, faster, all, all the things that, uh, that we know. 
And so that transition was really, really important. And in hindsight, it looks very obvious because going from an analog to an electronic world uh, not only created a more efficient, faster, lower cost, more global financial system, but it also created this massive inflection point in human production. And so what I think is happening right now is we're going through another transition. We're basically going to move from an electronic QCIP world to a digital asset world. And so all that simply means is uh, the assets stay the same. It's the technology that is going to uh, kind of change uh, or improve. Uh, and so you're still going to have stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. They're now not going to be electronic QCIPs. They're going to be digital uh, or tokenized or digital assets. You've probably heard all these terms. Uh, and you'll be able to buy the same asset from the same counterparties. Uh, but the people who are early to recognize in this will benefit from some of the superiority of the technology, and it will lead to outsized returns in the short term. And then over time, it will get commoditized down as more and more people realize that there's a superior uh, aspect to, uh, to using digital assets for these electronic QCIPs. Uh, and eventually, you'll get back kind of commoditized all the way down to where we are in the electronic QCIP world, which is everyone is using electronic QCIPs. Returns have been significantly decreasing over a long period of time. Uh, and that'll take, you know, 15 or 20 years. And so it's kind of, you know, nothing's new. It's just a repeat of what we saw the transition from analog to electronic. Now we're just going to go from electronic to, to digital. And I think that ultimately uh, people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. But that's really what's happening uh, when it comes to currencies and money is we're, we're seeing the beginning of that transition from that electronic uh, QCIP world to, uh, to digital asset world. So if you take that underlying foundation, I want you to kind of give the layman explanation of Bitcoin, right, with that context in mind, uh, and then also specifically how you judge the efficacy of it, right? There's, uh, I think when you break down digital, uh, when you break down kind of digital currencies like a Bitcoin, you know, fiat, gold, et cetera, and you judge each of them relatively against one another, there's characteristics and there's factors, you know, which speak to why Bitcoin might or, you know, might not, depending on what side of the argument you're on. Uh, be a superior store of value or, or medium of exchange than fiat. So walk us through kind of the layman example of or layman explanation of Bitcoin. And then let's get into some of the characteristics on how you judge the efficacy of why Bitcoin might be superior. Yeah, so to understand Bitcoin, you really have got to understand kind of fiat currencies, right? And fiat currency is just a fancy uh, phrase for government uh, created currency. Um, and so a fiat currency has a couple of key uh, kind of criteria or aspects to it. One is uh, it is created by and controlled by uh, a nation state. So a government is the creator and the, and the controller of it. Uh, the second is that uh, it is inflationary from a structure standpoint, meaning that they are constantly creating more and there is uh, an infinite supply available. They can create as much as they want uh, or as little as they want, but they, there's a variability to the total supply. Uh, and then the decisions along the way as to should we create more or less are made by humans uh, it's a small group, uh, usually kind of 12 or less people, depending on the central bank and, and the, the uh, currency. Uh, and it's done in a fairly opaque way, meaning that uh, th there's very little input, if at all, input from uh, the citizens. Um, and the process and the decision making is done behind closed doors. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to kind of understand some of the, uh, the data that's ingested and, and the decision making. We just kind of get told, hey, here's the final result of, or, or the process. And so when you think about, you know, a government creates it and controls it, there's infinite availability. And then the variable monetary supply schedule is determined by humans behind closed doors. Uh, those are three key pieces. The fourth one is uh, it's a narrative-based system. 
And what I mean by a narrative-based system is uh, we are told certain aspects of how the system works and what the existing data is, but we have no way to verify it ourselves. So nobody knows exactly how much currency is actually in circulation. Nobody knows how much is being created or taken out of circulation on a day-by-day -day or hour-by-hour -hour basis. Uh, and then nobody actually knows kind of the future uh, monetary policy decisions that will be made. We have some guidance and so kind of, you know, some, uh, some understanding of here's how we're thinking about it today, but they reserve the right to change their mind and, and uh, kind of without warning. Uh, you saw that in 2020 with kind of emergency rate cuts and things like that. And so that's how the fiat system works. Uh, it's actually served in the Western developed world uh, pretty well, right? We, we've had everything from the industrial revolution to uh, kind of the massive economic production uh, that, that the world has, uh, has benefited from. Uh, Bitcoin is uh, in almost all intents and purposes, 180 degrees different than that fiat system. And so uh, the first part is that it is not controlled or created by any one group or individual, meaning that nobody has actual control. It is fully decentralized. Um, and the decentralization is important because uh, when nobody controls something, that means that everyone has a say, right? And so a, a decentralized uh, currency is the exact opposite of that heavily centralized fiat currency, right? So 180 degree difference. The second thing is on the monetary policy. Uh, Bitcoin's monetary policy is uh, programmatic, meaning that it is written into code and that code cannot be changed unless more than 51% of people agree to actually change the code or the, or the monetary policy. And so the monetary policy, again, uh, if you look at the fiat world, variable like we've discussed. Here, it is not variable, right? It is written into code. It is programmatic. I know not only what has happened in the past, I know right now what's happening and I know what's going to happen in the future from a monetary policy standpoint. So there's a lot of clarity and transparency there. Uh, the next part is that uh, the Bitcoin structure, all right, the actual currency itself is deflationary in nature, meaning that there's an artificially capped supply. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And the monetary supply schedule, the amount of Bitcoin that's coming into the system on a, on a periodic basis, let's say every day, is known. Uh, what it is today and also what will happen in the future. And so today there's 900 Bitcoin that comes into the circulating supply every day. I can prove to you, right, if you go back in the fiat system, uh, it's a narrative-based system. This is an audit-driven system, meaning that I can prove to you in the code how many is the total supply, what's the incoming daily supply, what's the circulating supply, and I can actually show you every single transaction that has ever occurred since January 3rd, 2009, all the way until today. And so what you get is you get kind of an opaque, inflationary, human-led uh, uh, system in the fiat world that's controlled by governments. And in this uh, kind of digital decentralized world, what you get is you get a decentralized, transparent, programmable, um, kind of auditable uh, monetary system. And so ultimately, those two systems could not be more different in, uh, in their uh, kind of structure and their operations. And so what ultimately is kind of playing out in the market right now is there's a group of people that believe this new system uh, is wrong, uh, will not work, um, has you know, no probability of gaining adoption, kind of all, all the arguments against it. But then there's a group of people who believe that the new kind of decentralized, programmatic, open, transparent system is actually superior. And so they're choosing to adopt it. And I think ultimately that's where we're going to find uh, the market's going to be the referee. But that, that's how I kind of think of Bitcoin, especially in light or comparison to, uh, to the fiat system.
And so set the stage, Pomp, for what's going on right now specifically, right? When we're, we're taping this in early February, right? We launch, you know, we'll go public within in March or so. Uh, but there's a moment in time that's going on right now uh, that's serving as a catalyst for for Bitcoin and and rising the tide of all other cryptocurrencies with it, but but specifically fundamentally, you know, around Bitcoin. So tell us a little bit more about you know what's specifically going on, you know, right now, and why this is kind of the why this is the catalyst for Bitcoin, um, and and um, you know, and how that might change going forward. Yeah, so I think there's an element of uh, inevitability to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you can talk about digital sound money. You can talk about kind of the hardest, soundest money the world's ever seen. Just naturally, capital is going to flow to an asset where uh, in the Bitcoin system, purchasing power is not only preserved, but it actually uh, increases compared to the fiat system where your purchasing power decreases over time. Um, but in 2019, I think I started writing about it publicly in like May of 19. Uh, I started to talk about the idea of uh, the macro environment uh, having a number of events that would transpire uh, in concert with uh, something called the Bitcoin halving. And so the Bitcoin halving essentially is every four years, the amount of Bitcoin that comes into the system on a daily basis gets cut by 50%. So it was, you know, uh, 1800 uh, for the last couple of years. And then May 2020, it, it was going to cut to 900 and it, and it did do that. And so started writing about it in May, then I think I wrote about it again in like July, and then again, like maybe September, October. And the kind of theme that I was talking about was like, look, we are at the late stages of an economic cycle. I don't know when that ends, but there's a lot of warning signs that we're starting to see in the market. Again, it could go on for another five years or could go on for two more months. I, I just didn't know. But I said, what's interesting is we are seeing things like inverted yield curves. We're seeing uh, gyrations in the repo markets. We're seeing a lot of CEOs leaving their jobs, like all these little things that we know the signal late stage uh, kind of economic cycle. And I said, what would, is interesting is as we are starting to get towards the end of the cycle, when it turns over, the government and central bank is going to have to step in. We are addicted to monetary stimulus. And when they do that, they are going to manipulate interest rates down and they are going to print money. And so that monetary stimulus activity, if it hits somewhere around 90 days of the Bitcoin halving, that should serve as rocket fuel, right? Kind of you'll have a supply shock in, in the Bitcoin halving and you'll have a demand shock in that people will kind of all run, run to Bitcoin. And so I kind of wrote that a couple of times and I would have put it, I think I've said, you know, at the time, and, and maybe I've got a little bit of, uh, of uh, historical bias here, but I think probably like a 50-50, right, was kind of like my thought process. Like, like it was, it, it could happen, but I wasn't, you know, 80 or 90% convinced it was going to happen. Uh, fast forward, obviously, and then uh, we get into February of 2020, coronavirus really starts to pick up in the United States. Uh, and then March, we start getting the shutdowns. Um, and so the, the first thing that people had to realize was uh, in the beginning of March, I think on March 12th, I wrote something that said, you know, we're in a liquidity crisis, right? So kind of everyone calm down, take a step back, take a deep breath, just look at what's happening. We're in a liquidity crisis. And during a liquidity crisis, uh, there's a lot of chaos and uncertainty. Investors look around their portfolio and they say, I want dollars. I don't want to ex you know, experience the fluctuations. And so everyone starts selling every asset that has a liquid market. So all asset prices are going to fall. Uh, and the correlations will trend towards one and the dollar will strengthen. And so that's what we saw. We saw stock sell off. We saw, uh, you know, bonds, uh, precious metals, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera. Everything fell. Bitcoin happened to fall. Literally, I published that in the morning. It fell 50% that day. <laughs> Even for somebody who, you know, basically had kind of explained this is what's happening. Still did not feel good as the asset went down 50% that day. Uh, but the second part of what I wrote was like, hey, 
the government and the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are going to have to step in, right? And when they step in, they are going to basically print a bunch of money and they're going to do all stuff. Well, they acted more violently than I thought that they would, which was, you know, a good for the Bitcoin narrative. So they took two emergency rate cuts. They took us down to 0% interest rate environment. Uh, and then they started to print uh, what started out as kind of hundreds of billions and eventually became trillions of dollars. So about $4 trillion or so uh, at this point. And so what we saw was uh, kind of a marketing campaign for the dollar is going to be devalued. They're going to systematically weaken the dollar to protect short-term pain mitigation for those who hold investable assets. And so kind of the top, you know, 55% of Americans all have investable assets. The bottom 45% of Americans don't. Uh, and here came the intervention. And so as they began to manipulate markets, uh, I think investors basically kicked off this global scavenger hunt. They said, okay, we know the dollar is going to get devalued. We know that having inflation hedge assets, whether the inflation actually shows up or not, the fear of inflation is going to drive capital flows. And so I need to go find the best asset and protect myself. And ultimately, where a lot of very intelligent investors uh, kind of concluded uh, was that Bitcoin would serve as that fantastic uh, inflation hedge. And so there's the infamous uh, paper written by uh, Paul Tudor Jones and a number of other people who came out who said, look, all inflation hedge assets are going to do well, whether it's real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrencies, uh, stocks to some degree, etc. Uh, but the thing that will actually end up uh, performing best is Bitcoin. And that is because it has the smallest market cap, it has the most volatility, and therefore it's going to take the least amount of dollars to move it up the most on a percentage basis. And so ultimately what we've seen kind of transpire over the last nine months or so is not only was it macro traders, not only was it retail investors, but then you started to get large financial institutions, right? There was already some like the fidelities of the world that were involved, but now you're starting to see people like Guggenheim and other big names start to allocate capital. Uh, but now you're also seeing corporations. So you see MicroStrategy, you've seen Square, there's rumors of a number of other very large companies that are going to start doing this. And so when you start to see kind of that much capital flow, what you find is that although in March of 2020, everyone was screaming and yelling, say, Bitcoin's not a safe haven asset, Bitcoin's correlation, uh, it's actually directly correlated to stocks. Look at this, it failed the test of, you know, a market downturn. Well, when you zoom out, you know, kind of like exactly like I wrote, it's a non-correlated asymmetric asset, right? And so it's up, you know, last year was up 300% in 2020. Uh, and the correlation has gone right back to where it was previously, kind of about 0.15%. So it's a heavily non-correlated asset. It's been asymmetric. Uh, and investors are finding kind of a safe haven and refuge uh, in this de decentralized digital you know, kind of programmatic monetary uh, network. And I think that that's only going to continue. And as more and more people come in, right, which is basically demand increasing, you have a fixed supply asset. If you took economics 101, the US dollar price has to go up to accommodate everybody, right? And so I think it's just kind of a, a market structure type analysis, but that's basically where we were and what's happening now. Whenever I think of new systems, and, and this is typically a framework I, I use when thinking about startups um, and it applies to technology systems, et cetera. I always try to think, you know, whether it's something that's going to have more difficulty going from zero to one or going one to N, right? I think we canonically talk a lot about, you know, zero to one is really difficult. Once you've hit one, you know, you start to scale, right? But I can think of a number of counterexamples, you know, for example, something like mobile voting, which I think actually is an idea that gets a ton of support in the early days, right? It's hard to be against the idea of giving more people access using technology, et cetera. So I think it's an idea that actually gets off the ground to go zero to one. But actually, as it scales and tries to disrupt, you know, the full kind of entrenched system, um, I think it becomes a lot harder. I'm curious how you think of Bitcoin, you know, from a zero to one and one to n perspective, 
and then also how you um, how you kind of put into bear, you know, on one hand, a lot of corporate interests, a lot of institutional interests, with the other side of you know inevitable entrenched interests of central banks, you know, any sort of headwinds of regulation, if there might be, um, and how you kind of juxtapose, you know, both of those concepts together. Yeah. So again, let's go back to the legacy world and kind of understand just how a currency operates in a regulated environment, right? The dollar is not regulated. It's an inanimate object, right? So it's just kind of an asset that exists in the world. Uh, the dollar does not get sanctioned uh, in terms of uh, you, you can't pull it into court. Uh, you can't bring it in front of Congress. Uh, it's just an inanimate object. Uh, the institutions that interface with and support uh, and transact in the dollar are very heavily regulated. Right, or, or at least they're supposed to be. And so this is everything from things like KYC and AML, right? So know your customer anti-money laundering uh, regulations. Uh, there's things like money transmitter licenses, broker dealers, banking licenses, uh, all kinds of different regulations on the institutions that actually uh, kind of are related to or support or transact in that inanimate object. Um, and so when you take that framework and you apply it to Bitcoin, for example, the exact same thing is true. Right. So Bitcoin itself is not regulated. It, it can't be regulated. It's an inanimate object. There's no one to kind of pull in front of Congress, none of that stuff. Uh, but if you are an institution or a business and you uh, participate, you have to follow the same rules. And, and actually, I would make the argument that a Bitcoin related company is more heavily regulated than a traditional financial uh, organization. And I'll give you kind of two examples. So one is uh, if you are a business, let's say operating in the state of New York, you not only have to get all the same licensing and, uh, and regulatory kind of approvals that you would if you were a traditional uh, financial company, right? So you, if you need a broker dealer license, you have to have it. If you need uh, KYC AML, you have to have it, right? If you need a money transmitter license, you have to have it. Uh, but also because you are participating in the cryptocurrency industry, you have to get an extra license, right? One that a traditional company does not need to get, but a cryptocurrency company needs to get, which is called the bit license. And so literally in the state of New York, uh, a company in the cryptocurrency industry is more regulated than a traditional financial organization. The second situation is that uh, when it comes to actually transacting in the currency, uh, if you transact in the US dollar, uh, you pay no taxes, right, in terms of uh, using the money. Uh, and so if you think of if I go to the gas station, and I buy $10, uh, you know, Gatorade and candy bar, uh, I pay no taxes on that transaction. But if I was to go to the gas station and pay in Bitcoin, I pay taxes on that transaction, right? They, they basically say you're selling the asset. Um, as if it's an investment. And so in that case, it's actually uh, kind of more regulated uh, by the IRS than uh, dollars or, or other kind of traditional currencies. And so I think that one of the things that people kind of have as a, uh, um, uh, you know, misconception is that it's not regulated. It's actually regulated the exact same way from a structure standpoint as the US dollar system. Uh, but the second misconception is that there's fewer regulations uh, but it's actually the exact opposite. There's more regulations in kind of the Bitcoin and crypto uh, ecosystem than in the traditional finance world. Now, as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of people who say, okay, that's all cute and, uh, and there's some nuance in there, but uh, ultimately governments are just going to ban this, right? So like forget all about the, the individual countries and, and regulations and, and kind of all the, the micro stuff. The macro stuff is just, it's going to get banned and therefore I don't want to participate. And my response to those people um, it, it is, you know, fairly simple. Bitcoin is a open decentralized protocol, meaning that nobody owns it, nobody controls it, and anyone with an internet connection can access it, right? And it's got full accessibility. And that's part of the beauty of Bitcoin. 
We have other open decentralized protocols uh, that we have seen rise to prominence over the years. Uh, probably the most famous, obviously, being the internet itself. And so when the internet was created and started to gain adoption, uh, America had a choice. America could have said, oh my God, other countries like Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, uh, and whoever else you wanna put in kind of our adversary bucket uh, is going to use the internet and that is going to put them in a better position than they are today. And they could potentially hurt the United States because they have access to the internet. And therefore, we as the United States, we are going to ban the internet, right? We're gonna cut off American citizens from using this open decentralized protocol. Now, obviously that sounds absurd, right? And uh, there are some countries who did that, North Korea being one of them, right? And, and uh, they basically live in prehistoric times. And so when I kind of use that example, people literally will say, I, there's no world where that would ever happen. But my point in telling that story is that that's exactly what some people are advocating for with the banning of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is a open decentralized protocol. And so people around the world are going to adopt this. They already are. Every market point data that we have is suggesting that this is being adopted in a very material way, very quickly by all different types of countries, uh, institutions, and individuals around the world. So the advocacy for banning Bitcoin is essentially asking for the United States government to cut the citizens of our country off from an open decentralized protocol, right? The equivalent to that is we sanction countries around the world, right? We've sanctioned Venezuela. We've sanctioned Iran. We've cut those citizens off from the global financial system. And it has absolutely decimated the populations, their financial uh, kind of health and, and their ability to do global commerce. And so if we were to actually do that in the United States, we would be shooting ourselves in the foot. And so just like it would be absurd for us to uh, kind of ban the internet, the idea of banning Bitcoin, I think is just a, uh, a kind of a lazy argument that lacks intellectual rigor and lacks historical context uh, in terms of what the uh, real solution is, which is this is going to be a global phenomenon. And if the United States wants to preserve and accelerate their position of leadership on the global stage, what we should do is we should embrace this, we should embrace it in a major way, and we should say, if anyone is going to benefit from an open decentralized protocol like the Bitcoin network, we are going to be the leader and we are going to show the world how powerful we are and how advanced we are because we can embrace innovation and we can use it to our advantage. And so I think that that is a story that needs to be told uh, and it's also a story that uh, if it is not told, we could end up in a really, really bad place where we essentially take United States citizens off of an open decentralized protocol that ends up actually uh, enhancing and empowering uh, country, other countries around the world. What's the most compelling counter argument you've heard? You've heard a number of them, right? Why Bitcoin will fail, right? Won't succeed. What's been the most compelling critique of Bitcoin that you've heard and how does that get de-risked, right? Like, how do you quantify that risk? How do you think of overcoming it, et cetera? So I think that there's two things. Um, one is uh, I believe that there's a very strong argument to be made uh, for a self-inflicted wound. I actually think that is the number one risk to Bitcoin's uh, future dominance and can kind of continued dominance. Uh, Bitcoin is a technology product. Uh, it is uh, constantly being improved. Uh, it's constantly evolving. Uh, there is code being written and committed to, uh, uh, to the uh, protocol. And so if there was code that was introduced that ended up being fatal, uh, that could be very, very detrimental, right? Um, and so in my opinion, what you end up finding is um, 
the process of the development is uh, constructed in a way to mitigate that risk, right? So it's a very kind of slow, intentional, methodical uh, process, but it doesn't completely eliminate the risk uh, from ever occurring. And so, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of Bitcoin developers. Uh, they're incredibly intelligent, smart, thoughtful people. Um, but I, I do think that that's probably the number one risk because again, you just have a human process and, and uh, you're writing code and, and you've got to be intentional and methodical, but, but that is a risk. The second, uh, I think, is a psychological argument, which actually many people do not make, but I think would be a valid uh, uh, argument to make, which is if through media and through uh, kind of communication platforms, uh, whether it's governments, uh, bad actors, uh, or just detractors of Bitcoin, we're able to convince people that Bitcoin is only used by uh, terrorists, criminals, drug dealers, money launderers, and bad people, and essentially created a uh, systemic uh, taboo element to the asset, you could significantly uh, inhibit the adoption. So it would become uh, kind of an outcast of society to some degree, right, if you adopted Bitcoin. Uh, the nice thing is that for the Bitcoin community, we have kind of data and truth on our side, which shows that uh, actually Bitcoin, only about 40 basis points of all uh, transactions are used for illicit purposes, um, which is drastically lower than uh, kind of the legacy uh, fiat world. Um, but I do think that that's another one is kind of this psychological argument. And then the third argument uh, is that uh, there's kind of competition at some point, right? And so there, there's a lot of people who will make the argument like, oh, this is just the first one. There's going to be some other technology that comes that is superior and therefore people will leave Bitcoin and they'll go adopt the new thing. Uh, while it is, there's no doubt in my mind that there are other blockchains currently that have higher transactions, uh, volume or, or whatever other kind of technical innovation that uh, they point to. The big thing that people need to understand is that uh, one, money is a uh, network effect business, right? It's super viral. And once you get kind of a, um, a critical mass, it's very hard to break that network effect. We've seen that with a lot of businesses, whether it's Airbnb, Uber, et cetera. Uh, but also two is when you are creating a brand new money, you actually don't want to optimize for innovation and speed and medium of exchange capabilities. What you want to optimize for is security and store of value first. And so Bitcoin has made an intentional trade-off to make sure that their layer one is the most secure in the world. And they've successfully accomplished that. And so while other technologies may come up that are superior uh, in the short term, over you know, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, what you find is that Bitcoin is actually optimizing for the most important thing, which is the security. And two is it has the network effect and therefore that network effect will continue to drive adoption. As you get continued adoption, it buys the protocol more time in order to continue to improve. And where we'll likely end up is that not only is Bitcoin the most secure, but it eventually will also be the fastest, the cheapest, and, and kind of all of those other innovative uh, kind of technical capabilities that people point to. And so I think that it, it's um, obviously on buying Bias, right? I uh, am incredibly bullish on this. Uh, I think that there are valid um, kind of concerns for people to bring up, but I think that there's pretty strong uh, counterexamples and arguments to be made that drastically mitigate the probability of any one of those concerns uh, to actually become, you know, kind of come to fruition and, uh, and, and kind of validate the detractors. Uh, and what I think is actually more likely is not that uh, people are overestimating Bitcoin and its kind of future success, but it's that we're underestimating 
this asset, right? And we're underestimating kind of the future potential, uh, similar to how people, when they looked at Facebook or Airbnb or Uber, Amazon, or, you know, name your kind of innovative disruptive technology, people could never imagine the success that those companies have had um, or those products have had. And I think the same thing will be here where uh, we are all drastically, drastically underestimating Bitcoin's kind of future uh, performance um, and uh, and kind of global adoption and uh, and value creation. And so it'll be fun to watch this all uh, kind of play out. You talked about a little bit earlier, kind of the downside of a government decapitating, you know, basically their their citizenry from this uh, decentralized open protocol. I'm curious, Tom, from your perspective, which governments are you looking at today? And you're you're kind of nodding your head and saying, you know, yep, they they nailed it, right? Or that's the right strategy. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan wrote a post. Um, making the case for the Indian government to launch a digital rupee, right? In in part, you know, to the recent rumored speculation that India was going to ban cryptocurrencies. I've, I've often thought of, you know, why the U.S. government wouldn't, and, you know, who knows, maybe they have, just buy a huge amount of Bitcoin and store it as the ultimate, you know, hedge, right? Um, it's very, very small in the grand schemes of a large, you know, fiscal budget, uh, but could have significant outsized return. What are the governments or who are the governments that you look at and you say, you know, these folks are thinking about it the right way. Yeah, um, I, I do think that the United States, while maybe we don't have kind of broad federal uh, kind of consensus uh, on kind of what to do here, I do think that there's a number of very intelligent politicians and regulators. Um, you can look at somebody like uh, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia uh, Loomis uh, in uh, Wyoming. Uh, she now sits on the uh, Senate Banking Committee. You can look at somebody like uh, Warren Davidson in Congress. Uh, you can kind of look at uh, the incoming SEC um, kind of uh, uh, chairman, uh, Gary Ginsler. I think that, you know, a number of those people, you look at it at the municipal level, uh, you can see somebody like Francis Suarez, who's the mayor of Miami. Um, you can kind of just go through, and that's not an exhaustive list, but just kind of a couple of examples of people who or in positions of power and influence in government uh, or in the regulatory bodies. And they really kind of understand this stuff uh, and, and they happen to be very um, kind of big proponents of the future uh, of what it can do. I then think that you can look to uh, countries where uh, we feel like uh, there's a very high degree of innovation. So Singapore, for example, uh, or you can look at somewhere like Estonia, right? It seems like those countries have really, really, uh, kind of understood and embraced digital technologies in general, but also cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically in various uh, kind of use cases or applications. And then the last group, and, and this is the one that everyone hates to talk about, but uh, I am, uh, I'm a student of, uh, of markets and you know, I, I, uh, I kind of try to remove the why and just look at what uh, in some cases. Uh, and so uh, nefarious governments, right? Kind of people that, uh, governments that people would assume uh, or, or, uh, or claim are bad actors. So if you look at North Korea, Iran, uh, Venezuela, et cetera, uh, many of those countries have embraced uh, digital assets, right? Uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And the reason why they're doing it is they're doing it at necessity, right? I don't necessarily think that they believe that digital technologies are the future and they want to be super innovative and, you know, Venezuela is making the case for the next Silicon Valley, right? What I think is that they've been sanctioned, you know, basically out of existence and they need some way to conduct uh, transactions. Uh, and so if there's a censorship free uh, payment rail, 
they're going to find it and they're going to use it, right? And so I think that uh, you kind of have, um, you know, an understanding at the government level from multiple parties, but for different reasons. So in the U.S., right, it's a it's a story of innovation, it's a story of global leadership, it's a story of uh, kind of uh, wanting to continue to push progress forward uh, and to use new technology to do that. If you look also in places like Estonia. Uh, Singapore and elsewhere. Uh, I think it's a similar story, kind of, hey, we're not the global leader, but we would like to drastically increase our position in the world, and therefore we can be embracing of this disruptive technology. And then you basically have the people who are doing it out of necessity. And just like, you know, criminals adopted the internet, beepers, cell phones, and a bunch of other technology first, right? They did it out of necessity to kind of stay one step ahead of law enforcement. I think that what you're really seeing is these governments uh, like Venezuela or Iran uh, who are doing it, but they're actually in some weird way showing the power of the technology. Uh, and so again, it goes back to, do we want to, as the United States say, hey, <laughs> well, they got a technology, we're just not gonna use it. Or do we instead wanna say, well, if they're gonna benefit it from it, we better make sure we benefit more from it. Let's go embrace it and make sure that we're the leader. And so I think that's kind of how I look at the, the global landscape in a kind of generalized manner. There's two philosophical underpinnings to, to Bitcoin and really all of cryptocurrency. And we've, we've talked about them and alluded to them in the discussion today, you know, trust and, and decentralization. Um, I want to talk about decentralization in a, in a more broadly applicable way, right? There's, there's of course, decentralization as an underpinning to, to all of crypto. Um, but there's elements of decentralization that are really starting to seep, you know, into the core of our society, which are going to end up making the technological case for additional crypto networks, cryptocurrencies, crypto applications, you know, outside of just Bitcoin. Um, we've obviously had some major, you know, trigger events recently with with debates on on both sides of um, you know validity or invalidity of censorship, et cetera. Set the stage pump a little bit on what's going on with um, decentralization more broadly right now uh, in our society, and and what the output of that you know bodes what bodes for uh, for crypto and crypto networks. Yeah, I think that you've got to really look at why is decentralization important? And uh, there's nuance here in terms of what industry or product you're talking about. But ultimately what we have found is uh, centralization has become a major business risk uh, at this point in kind of the legacy or traditional world. And so whether you look at social media companies that are forced to make decisions uh, around uh, censorship and deplatforming, uh, whether you're looking at financial institutions that either because of business models like in the uh, Robinhood situation uh, or in some sort of financial uh, censorship uh, situation where people are literally kicked off of certain platforms, uh, or you just look at kind of everyday products, right? Um, I, I think that what we are finding is having one individual or one organization that controls uh, a product or service is a drastic weighting of power in favor of that one individual organization. And because that seems to be somewhat of a zero sum game, it ends up being detrimental to uh, the uh, user base of that product or service. And so when we talk about censorship or uh, decentralization, what we're really talking about is solving a lot of those problems, whether it's censorship, whether it's some sort of um, kind of power balance, whether it's an economic redistribution, um, kind of all these different things uh, uh, decentralization brings to the table. And so what is decentralization? It basically means that nobody, not, no one person or group controls the product or service. And so when that occurs, uh, let's look at the economic argument. So Facebook 
is a fantastic business, right? It has grown. It's got a, a ton of revenue. Uh, it's got a lot of profitability to it. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg is really, really rich because of it. And so are a lot of the uh, other shareholders of that business. Well, what would happen if Facebook was not controlled by that company, uh, but was rather controlled by uh, the user base? And so the very users that are essentially the product ended up also being the economic beneficiaries of it. Now, you could make the argument that, sure, they can go buy shares on the public market, right, and they can benefit from, uh, from doing it, but that would not now be them risking additional capital on top of their participation in the network, right? And so I think that, like, that is an example where, from an economic standpoint, you could see the billions of dollars of revenue being dispersed among the billions of users that Facebook has, and everyone would kind of get their share of uh, the economic uh, production and value capture of that network would then flow through to, uh, to the individuals. When decentralization also applies to things like censorship, right? So when you have a platform that uh, let's call, let, let's say is uh, a social media platform, rather than having one person or small group of people make all the decisions around whose voice gets heard, whose doesn't, who gets amplified, who doesn't, what you then could have is you could have actually all users of that platform making those decisions. Again, it doesn't mean that we alleviate 100% of the problems. It may actually introduce new problems, but what it does mean is that the decision-making and the governance is made by the crowd or, or, or the user base itself, rather than some sort of uh, overlord in, in uh, the, the social platform. And so I think somebody like a Jack Dorsey actually is the perfect example where, you know, Jack would probably be the first one to say, he doesn't want to be in the situation where they're having to make decisions as the arbiter of truth or making decisions on who gets to be on the platform, who doesn't. He'd be feel much, much more comfortable if the audience or the user base could make those decisions. And so they're working on decentralization. And then I think the last thing really is uh, around uh, resiliency, right? And so when you see things like uh, the Bitcoin network that is a decentralized payment rail, uh, there is nobody who can take that system down, right? But if you then look at something like, let's just use uh, Visa, Visa could go down tomorrow, right? Whether it's through a malicious hack or the government just comes in and says, Visa, you can't operate anymore because of XYZ reason. That centralization is a business risk in that situation. And while it sounds absurd um, or kind of hyperbolic to talk about Visa being shut down, what we do know is that Visa is shut down in a lot of countries around the world, right? And so, yes, in the Western kind of world, we're very spoiled, right? The idea of Visa being shut down is, you know, a, a near zero probability. But there's a lot of people around the world that say, well, Visa doesn't work here. And so I think that is kind of the, the example that we have to remember here is decentralization levels the playing field on a global stage. And it kind of allows for people who have previously been at a disadvantage to now have access to the same products uh, and the same services uh, that the internet promised kind of, you know, was to deliver. Uh, and I think that that'll naturally be a net positive for uh, global human production um, as uh, we get more decentralized products and more accessibility for people around the world. I think one of the fallacies you're teasing out is is typically a, a pretty natural human focus on evaluating something and asking yourself why this can fail versus looking at an opportunity, a system, a technology, a product, whatever it might be, and asking, you know, if this works, how big can it be? So we've talked a lot about decentralization. We've talked about, you know, a, a world of what decentralization might look like uh, through example. Paint a little bit more on the opportunity specifically and the types of use cases you're most excited about today, right? How do you think of the life of everyday people changing, you know, with decentralized technology over the next, you know, year, five years, you know, decade uh, and, and going forward? 
Yeah, I actually think uh, decentralization uh, will not matter from a, a marketing standpoint, if you will, over time. So if you go back to uh, the 90s, uh, it was the cool hip thing to do was start an internet company. Well, now if you fast forward to 2021, nobody talks about starting an internet company. No one talks about being an internet entrepreneur, right? No, it's just they're an entrepreneur or they're starting a business. And if you're not on the internet, people kind of look at you sideways and they're like, why would you not use the internet, right? Uh, and so I think that uh, crypto and decentralization is very similar. Today, somebody will say, I'm starting a crypto business from a crypto entrepreneur, uh, or I'm starting a decentralized X product, right? Uh, 20 years from now, people will just say, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm building a product. And it'll kind of just be the, uh, uh, the, the natural um, uh, kind of default, if you will. And so to me, decentralization, uh, the important thing is people are not going to leave a centralized product or service just because it's decentralized. No one's leaving Twitter for decentralized Twitter. What they will leave is they'll leave Twitter if there's a better product or a product that serves a different use case. So Clubhouse is a great example. Now, Clubhouse isn't decentralized either, but there's people who are spending time on one application that aren't spending time on the other application, right? And so I think that what ultimately is going to happen is people are gonna to have to still build a 10X better experience, whether it's a product or a service. Uh, and when they do that, oh, it happens to be decentralized, right? The, the decentralization is kind of uh, in the background. It's, it, there's an opaqueness to it. Um, and so people just have to remember like decentralization is not enough of a hook to get the mass user to move from a centralized service to a decentralized one. What you actually have to do is you have to build a better product and then eventually every product will be decentralized and we won't be talking about decentralization. We'll just be talking about kind of, you know, what does that product do? And of course it's centralized, just like today, of course the business is built in the cloud, right? Like no one, no one's like, oh my God, we have this, you know, uh, super innovative uh, computing infrastructure. We use dot, 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 the cloud, right? Like, no, of course you're in the cloud. One of the use cases I get really excited about is, um, and, and I love that framing, by the way, because I, I think I think the definition of when crypto companies go mainstream is when we stop calling them crypto companies, right? Or crypto projects or so. One of the use cases I get really excited about um, is tokenizing at a, at a more atomic level. And, and what I mean by that is identifying opportunities in areas today where financing doesn't occur, right? Either because there aren't the mechanisms in play or because traditional stalwarts of the system, you know, don't understand it or don't have the tools, you know, to really enable that. With crypto, I think there's something really interesting going on with creators. Uh, I think creators are going to be able to supercharge their production and actually value capture a lot more uh, with tokens, right? We talked a little bit, you gave a little bit of the example of, you know, at Facebook, if we, if we really think about who's the product, it's really all of us that are using it. And what if there was a way, you know, to share in the economic value creation and the gain, you know, on that network, how do you think about the impact of, of tokenizing and, and just unpack, you know, what might be possibilities for, you know, how this would unlock value at scale for producers? Yeah, look, um, I've got kind of a, a unique perspective here, which is when new technology is created, you can do two things with it. You can use the new technology to improve the old world, or you can use the new technology to create things the world's never seen before. And so the idea of taking, let's say, these decentralized uh, open protocols, right, uh, blockchains, uh, to improve the old world, you can create tokenized securities or, or digital securities. And what that simply means is you take Apple, Amazon, and you know, the plethora of other public or private companies, and rather than issue uh, electronic QCIP shares, what you would do is you would issue these digital shares. Uh, they'd have similar governance and economic rights, uh, but they would be digital in nature. Uh, they would be kind of housed on um, blockchains, but they would um, you know, look very similar to the old world, just kind of a technology improvement. 
that's interesting. But what's more interesting to me is uh, kind of what can we create that's new, right? And in this new world, um, what I liken it back to is think of media companies when the internet came around. If you owned a newspaper and you simply just took a, a copy, like on a copy machine, and uh, then put the PDF version of the newspaper up on a website, that was cool, right? You didn't have to deliver the physical paper. Somebody could just access an IP address and then bam, they could read the newspaper. And if that's where you stopped, then you missed 99% of the value of the internet to a media publisher, right? Because then they didn't get to benefit from a content management system, uh, dynamic headlines, the insertion of multimedia content into the article, um, you know, the ability to update articles, to share and distribute it on social platforms and kind of do all the things that we now know, like, hey, the internet was pretty cool for media publishers compared to just having a printing press and a newspaper. And so that's kind of how I look at securities or other assets, right? It's like, well, what's the new thing? And so if we simply just take old assets and put them on blockchains, uh, I think there's some value creation there, but it's not really that disruptive, right? It's just a, an iterative improvement on the old system. Instead, what I think becomes interesting is things like streaming payments or on-chain cash flows. So uh, if you think of what a stock really is, a stock gives you governance rights and it gives you economic rights. And those rights are you have a claim on cash flow and a claim on the company's assets when you own uh, equity. And so now all of a sudden, what happens if rather than having all of the value accrued to the share price, what happens if I now have a way where every day that the business gets paid, if I own one one thousandth of the business, I get one one thousandth of the cash flow routed to me automatically and it hits my bank account, similar to how Stripe pays me out every day, right? Now, all of a sudden, you change the definition a little bit of what does equity mean? Right. And what happens if that on-chain cash flow uh, also comes with governance rights because it's a decentralized system and I get one of 1000 votes because I own one one thousandth of uh, the system. And so now I have on-chain cash flows and I have governance rights, which looks a lot like traditional equity, but it's done in a completely new, disruptive, decentralized way. And I think the world's not ready for that yet in terms of uh, prepare. So there will be a lot of disruption when that occurs. Another idea is this idea of streaming payments. Streaming payments would be, um, you know, if everyone want, if every company said, I'm going to pay all of my employees at the end of every day, right? That would be an absolute nightmare. There's a technology hurdle and there's an accounting hurdle. Uh, and so companies just don't have the technology to do that. Uh, and they also couldn't keep track of it because it's such a human driven process to run payroll. And so now what you start to see is if all of a sudden you have streaming payments, you can say, well, the technology has improved to the point where we can send small amounts of uh, currency to employees on a frequent basis for very low to zero cost. Uh, and we can also keep track of it in an automated, an automated way. And so if now you can basically keep track of and you can pay people small amounts every single day. What you can do is you can pay your employees at the end of every day. And if you pay your employees every day, what you can do is you can create massive, massive economic relief for those individuals. Uh, one of the first things that would happen is that the top four banks wouldn't make $8 billion in overdraft fees because people would actually have money in their bank accounts rather than the company holding onto the money and only paying out every two weeks or every month. And so I think that's the type of stuff that really, really gets me excited, which is we have a new piece of technology. How do we apply that to create new things the world's never seen before and do it in a way that's incredibly disruptive and innovative? And essentially what people don't like to say, but what it does is it sticks its middle finger up to the legacy world and says, you're old, you're archaic, you're antiquated, and I'm here to disrupt you. And so that takes a certain type of entrepreneur, it takes a certain type of company, but the people who are able to successfully do that, not only will create a ton of value, but they'll also benefit by uh, capturing a lot of that value. And I think ultimately that's just how technology works and that's how technology kind of evolves over time. I think one of the things that's really, one of the things that's really interesting from what you're unpacking is also this element of going directly to consumers and uh, not being held back by gatekeepers, right? And I think we're seeing that 
in kind of every facet and every dimension of life. I want to use that as a way to transition a little bit to talk about, you know, your budding media empire. I think a lot of the folks that are listening to this, um, you know, have listened to this much of the conversation now and said, you know, here's a pretty sharp guy talking about cryptocurrency. And I've, I've learned a lot about decentralization. Uh, but many folks, you know, might that are listening to this might not know actually how much of an emerging, you know, media personality you are. I I look at this as a continuation of the theme that we've been discussing, which is, you know, going ultimately and directly to your consumers, not needing a middleman or, or a gatekeeper to broadcast message. Um, so let's kick off, you know, this part of the discussion by just talking a little bit more about, you know, some of the media efforts um, that you are pursuing and and that you've created and and the scale of your audience, you know, candidly that you're reaching today. Yeah, so um, I've got a couple of different properties. Uh, I've got a, a podcast, um, do about two, two and a half million downloads every month uh, across audio and video. Um, we've got a, a daily letter that I write to about 120,000 uh, investors uh, there. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel that's got about 150,000 subscribers on it. Uh, I've got a Twitter account that's got over half a million uh, followers, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out, but uh, that that's uh, the stuff off the top of my head. Uh, we got a YouTube show that does, you know, I don't know 10, 12, 15,000, whatever it is, views per day. Um, and, and so just generally uh, lots and lots of content production. Um, and my strategy, frankly, is twofold. One is uh, go direct. Um, and if I'm going to uh, spend time uh, thinking about things and putting it out in the world, I want to make sure that I put it out there in my words, right? And, and there's no spin to it. I don't have to ask permission uh, to get the word out. I don't need to go pitch uh, the media to write an article. Uh, in many cases, especially in, in the crypto industry, I have the biggest platform, right? I, I have more people. When I send out uh, the email, um, you know, I think I've literally have between 130 and 160,000 people that will read it. There's not a single other, you know, frankly, uh, uh, definitely not in crypto and in most other, um, you know, industries, that is an absurd amount of readership for a single piece. And so when you start to think about that consistency to reach that type of audience, uh, it can be quite valuable to, you know, especially somebody like me who spends, you know, most of my time actually investing. Uh, not not on the content stuff. And so the, the whole goal, go direct idea is really built around uh, wanting to speak when you want to speak, say exactly what you mean, uh, and have that heard by uh, the exact group of people that you want it heard. And so not needing to ask for permission or to go through somebody else's channels. And so naturally, you just kind of acquire that direct relationship. Uh, the second thing is that um, I believe uh, that we are moving to a world where authenticity uh, reigns supreme. And so the best way to be authentic is to live your life through these digital platforms, right? And so uh, people know me pretty well. If they meet me on the street, they pretty much know exactly who I am. And it's kind of weird at sometimes because they'll literally start talking to me as if like we're best friends for 20 years, right? And I'm like, wow, I don't even know your name. And I like have to like say, hold on, stop for a second. Like, what is your name, right? Um, and, and so it, it, it's cool because what it does is uh, it's very uh, divisive, right? There's some people who really like me and they want to consume as much content from me as possible. There's other people who actually think I'm the biggest idiot in the world. I'm completely wrong and like this is all gonna end in tears and a burning ball of fire. Well, 
you know where I stand, right? I make no apologies for it. And so if you like it, you're going to consume the content. If you don't like it, you're unlikely to consume the content, but even some people still consume it just because it's kind of like watching a car wreck in slow motion to them, right? It's like you still want to keep your eyes because uh, you want to watch, you know, watch the guy fail. Um, and so I think that just having that direct relationship is one really powerful, but also two is uh, it is the future um, of kind of media and business. And so uh, I leverage a lot of that stuff to, uh, to, to help on the investing side. And it's been incredibly valuable for me. Yeah, let's talk about the interconnectedness, right? Because I think audience um, and connectivity leads to all sorts of intangibles. I mean, you you and I are advisors on a SPAC together. That'll be public by the time this releases. Uh, but you've also jumped into a bunch of interesting offshoots. You recently launched uh, a job board, right, specifically for crypto. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me about that is, you know, you've effectively leveraged your audience and you've thought through from a business perspective how to basically become a one-man staffing company. And that's one of your projects that probably takes, you know, a fraction of percentage of time right out of your week. Right. So talk a little bit more about how you think about, you know, developing audience, developing connectivity, how to actually leverage that, you know, for different types of business opportunities and more specifically, how do all of those elements interrelate? Right. So as opposed to here, are 30 offshoots of projects, I imagine, you know, kind of in, in your head, there's this like master flywheel of how these things all actually self reinforce one another. And then, you know, it strengthens some of those core properties um, and it and it creates, you know, some additional elements uh, like things like this job board, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, there was no master plan, but as I've kind of built out some of this stuff, I've been able to, uh, you know, kind of put it all together. And so the way that I think about it is um, the outbound content builds audience. As you build audience, you then can... Uh, engage with that audience in very unique ways. So obviously from an investing perspective, it is incredibly compelling when I go to a founder and I say, listen, I have the largest audience in this industry. Uh, I think what you're building is incredibly valuable. Uh, it will be very disruptive. You're going to have to do the work. I can't build the company for you. No one else, no other investor can. Uh, every investor who tells you that they can help you with their business is probably full of shit, right? And myself included. Uh, but what I do know is that I have a massive platform and what I'm willing to do is I'm willing to lend you that platform when and if you need it. And so that is something that is very differentiated, right? There's not very many founders uh, or not very many investors who can go to founders that can say that and actually deliver on that one promise, right? So um, I think that that helps when it comes to investing. The other thing that it helps with is when I then make those investments, I'm obviously staking my reputation and capital that I think that this company is valuable. So I could turn around to the audience and say, hey, I have found something that I think is so valuable that I'm willing to stick my reputation and my capital on it. Here it is. And so in many cases, I can help from a customer acquisition standpoint. But really what I'm doing is I'm helping the audience find brand new things. They like that because they get to see things early and new. Uh, then when you look at things like the job board, ultimately what I found was I kept having people come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for a job in the space. Do you know who's hiring? Uh, here's my skill set, you know, all this kind of stuff. I literally get 10 to 15 of them still today, DMs every single day of that stuff. And then I would talk to founders and founders would say, we're having trouble finding great talent. Like we have all these open roles, right? I mean, some of the companies on the job board have literally a hundred plus roles open. And so they're like, we, we can't find talent. And so that was a really easy thing where I have this massive megaphone and I could say, hey, if you're a company, come and list your open roles. If you are a job candidate, come here, right? And there's a ton of open roles open. We're going to create a marketplace. And so if you look at it from a business building standpoint, there's no better business in the world than to own the dominant marketplace in a vertical, 
right? So that's what I'm going to build. Uh, and I make no qualms about that. Uh, but also the thing that I like about it and where I really try to optimize my time, energy, and uh, uh, kind of money is that it's a win-win-win. It's a win for the job candidates because already in the first week, we've already got multiple people jobs, right? So already we've had multiple people hired. Then it's a win for the companies because, for example, there's one company I just tweeted about that uh, they put up two jobs, uh, roles on the uh, job board. One of them is already filled. They already accepted an offer and they just put out the offer on the second one. We're nine days into it now. Right. And so like I'm helping that business in kind of a passive way. So there's a win for job candidates, win for the corporations. And then it's a win for me. Like it's a for profit business where you're going to make a lot of money on this. Right. And so like, I, again, I, I don't hide that fact. And so when I kind of zoom out and I look at it, like there's a lot of people who I think look at these businesses and they're like, oh, a content business sucks. Well, the content business sucks if that's all you do. But what I just did for the last four years is I led a massive marketing campaign and customer acquisition. Uh, funnel. I now have hundreds of thousands of people every single day who are paying attention. And now what I'm going to go do is I'm going to build a bunch of products and services that serve them and actually make their lives better, right? And help them. And so when you have that kind of mentality, one is it takes a lot of persistence and kind of just uh, patience, right? I didn't know I was going to go do this. It just so happens three, four years in when I looked up and I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of people here. Like I probably should like figure this out. Um, I, I think that that work to my advantage, but also, uh, and I talk about this a lot kind of internally with our team is like, I am fucking relentless. Right. And the fact that I now have the largest audience, I'm not satisfied, not from like an egotistical standpoint. It's I'm going to go build the largest marketplace on the job side. Right. And then I'm going to go in and I absolutely am going to come after other parts of the market. Uh, when, where, how, I don't know yet, but the aspect of, uh, I'm playing to win to me is a core competency of playing the game of business. If you're not here to win, then why are you playing the game? Right. And so the thing that used to happen is people had to build a product or service and they had to go find the customers. What now is happening is people are finding the customers and then they're building the products and services. So it's kind of happening in reverse. And I just so happened to have positioned myself to have already done the customer acquisition. And now I'm in a position where I can start building these products and services. The job board was kind of the first um, you know, thing out of the gate. Uh, in the first week, it's already doing six figures in revenue. It's super profitable, right? And so when you look at that, you say, wait a second, you're talking about being able to now launch products that will accelerate adoption and you can go from zero to really, really attractive business in a very short period of time with a zero dollar uh, cost of acquisition. You just weren't able to do that before the internet and before social media. And so now that we can do that, what I think we've got to really look at is, are the people who have large audiences, are they native creators or are they native business people, right? I'm fortunate in that, yes, I create content. Yes, I have an audience. I'm a business person. I spent most of my life building companies and investing in companies, right? So I come at it from the business perspective. There's a lot of people who create content and have an audience, but they're creator natives. So they're learning the business stuff. They're, they have to surround themselves with business people. And neither one of those paths is right or wrong. There's pros and cons to each. But I do think that when it comes to building a business, obviously the business people have an advantage, right? When it comes to creating content, actually the content people have an advantage. And so that trade-off uh, exists, but I think that just you know, if you're building a company, if you're investing in companies, you got to just open your eyes and realize like the world has shifted here. And so being able to um, kind of very, very quickly understand the power of audience and kind of what you can do once you have that audience will, uh, will serve as a great benefit for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and investors. 
As we round out the conversation, I want to read you off uh, one of your tweets uh, that I really loved, and I want to get your reaction to it as, as kind of the last word. No one is coming to save you. Do the work. Look out for yourself. <laughs> uh, that's one of many mottos that I live my life by. Um, you know, again, it goes to kind of back to this idea of just being fucking relentless, right? Of like, there's a lot of people in the world, they sit by, uh, they're waiting for something else. They're waiting for permission. They're waiting for uh, X, Y, and Z to happen. And then I can do, you know, what I want to do. And I've always just taken the approach in life is like, I'm, you know, not always right. And in fact, many times I'm wrong. Uh, I'm not always uh, 100% the best at something. But what I do know is that I have a propensity for action. Uh, and when I want to do something, I'm not going to live my life regretting the fact that I never took a, an attempt at it. I'm going to go after it. And so when you take this kind of ownership perspective of uh, if I don't do this work, no one's going to do it, right? The job board, I sat on that for three months and I was waiting and waiting. I was like, of course, somebody's going to do this, right? Of course, like nobody was doing it. I realized like, no, I am the person that if I want this built, I'm going to have to build it. And so when you take that approach, I think what ends up happening is you naturally look out for yourself because there's no better thing in the world than to uh, kind of tie your personal identity to your own name. And there's no better thing in the world than to own the things that you're working on, right? And so, you know, one of the things that um, I don't think I've ever actually talked about this publicly, one of the things I do internally is every single employee that we have has upside, right? And the odds that I can actually sell the content and all that is, is near impossible. So it's a revenue share and it's a pretty healthy revenue share. And what I essentially tell people is, look, everything that we work on here, right? It doesn't matter if you edit content, if you build products, if you sales, whatever it is, if this entire thing gets more valuable in terms of cash flow, you will make more money. And I think that when you start to kind of build that culture, uh, what you do is you say, look, whether you're the owner and founder of a company or you are an employee, if you have the ability to drastically increase your earnings on a day-to-day -day basis based on your effort and value creation, that's a really, really powerful thing. And I think what it does is it attacks everything from the wealth and equality gap all the way on up to, it just makes people happy, right? Like I don't know very many people who do work and are like, ah, if I'm more successful, I'll be mad about it, right? Like that's just not, that's like a foreign concept. And so I think that ultimately that's what it comes down to. It's just, you have to look out for yourself, the government, your boss, uh, your family, no one else is looking out for you. And if you take that approach into life, I think that you'll be much, much better off than if you didn't. Well, Pomp, I, I appreciate the time and, and I appreciate the, the different threads of discussion we've had today. Certainly will be you know, educational for a lot of the folks listening. So thanks for joining us and, and thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. I love the show and I appreciate the time.